Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Theological Arsonist. I'm your host, Jonah Saller. Today, I'm joined by a dear friend of mine. Uh, his name is Mark Anderson. Uh, we met through a mutual friend and uh, have really just developed a, a wonderful brotherhood um, in Christ. Um, and so I'm really grateful to have him with me today to, to talk about the New Testament, New Testament theology, Ephesians, um, and a, a little bit of everything in, in those departments. And so, Mark, thank you for being here with me. And it's truly my honor. Thank you. Yeah, this is, this is going to be good. Um, so to kind of get into um, our, our topic, as Christians, we have the tendency to open up the scriptures, to look at the scriptures, and... We're told to study them, to know them, to learn them. And so we do this sometimes without ever really recognizing maybe preconceived notions that we have in our head about what this particular text is saying through, you know, whether that be a systematic theology that we've been brought up in or something else. So just to outline, what is the importance of New Testament introduction? Okay. The key for New Testament introduction is it gives us a context for... Um, whatever book or letter we happen to be studying. Um, let me throw an example at you. So, Jonah, if I, were to, if I were to walk in and sit down right here and just say, Jonah, I hate everything you've ever stood for. In fact, I repudiate everything, everything I know about you. Okay, aside from the tape ending right now, what, what would that mean to you? Right. Well, no, that's yeah. a question. Well, it would, it, would be, it would make me just assume that you repudiate every aspect of my life, my faith, my, you know. Yeah, and I, I think the thing we think about, yeah, I've probably rejected Christianity, right. um, anything along those lines. Anything associated with me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, if I were to say the same thing, I hate everything you stand for and I repute everything that you've ever stood for to, uh, let's say, one of our presidential candidates. Okay, well, that probably means I may have taken a, a, a political shift somewhere along the way. Right. Okay. If, though, I'm a 15-year-old boy and I'm saying that to my dad, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Context matters. What we know about when a book was written how it was written, why it was written, all that stuff matters. And if it was written out of haste and anger toward a father figure, okay, well, that tells me one thing. It tells me something else if it's directed at a brother. So before we even jump in to start reading one of these books of Scripture, if we are uh, being good students of the Word and... Uh, studying to show ourselves approve and all of that, before we jump into any of that, we better know a little bit about what's going on. Right. Okay? And so that's, that's what introduction, NTI, New Testament introduction, or OTI, Old Testament introduction is all about. So we want to find out anything, any basic, um, like we kind of step back for a bit, what do we know about this book? Or what do we know about this letter? Who was the author? How do we know this guy was the author? Did he ever say so? Right. Okay. Luke, for example, tells us 
Okay. Hmm. All right, good. And he tells us who is writing to, interestingly, and why. He gives us a little bit about his methodology. Nobody else does, but you know, good, good for you, Luke. That's a good historian, all right? Uh, who was it written to? How do we know that? Uh, when was it written? And that's probably the hardest thing to come up with. But when was it written? Why was it written? Uh, look at the Corinthians. Um, or the Corinthian epistles, the first, the first epistle to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, has a list of several questions. Oh, wait, it does? Yeah, yeah, it does. They come out as headers uh, in the book, but we, uh, they apparently asked a bunch of questions of Paul, and he's just now going down the grocery list. Well, regarding this, well, regarding that, you asked about this, and then you asked about that. I'm going to answer all those questions for you. Okay, that gives us a little bit more of a context. That helps us as we're reading to give some kind of an idea where we're at. Okay? Sure. So in, in looking at NTI or New Testament introduction, we want to know about uh, the author, the recipients. Uh, big word uh, that a lot of theologians like to use is provenance. Where were you when you wrote it? Or where did it come from? Date. Another thing that a lot of folks don't really include, but I think is kind of, kind of cool, is who else might have been involved in the authorship? For example, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I put it, I'll do it anyway. Sure. All right. So in all of Paul's letters, and there's 13 of them, one guy one particular figure stands out as involved in almost every one of them. Almost every one. Can you name him? No, no, okay. No, yeah. It's Timothy. Hmm. Either as a co-author, we'll find him as a co-author in some of those books. Hmm. We will find him as a recipient. Okay, first and second Timothy, Timothy, my beloved. Okay, yeah, it's probably written to Timothy. Good, good, good. Uh, he's also, Timothy sends his greetings and some others. That's true, yeah. But yeah. I, I believe uh, in Titus and Ephesians, I think are the only two books where his name is not mentioned, either as recipient or participant. Okay, well, that's kind of cool. Good for trivia. Nice to know that. What else do we know about Timothy? He was a kid. What does that mean? He was a kid. Well, how old was he? We, we don't know. Some scholars have said he's as young as 16, 17 years old. Others say maybe 20, mid 20, something like that. But whatever's the case, Paul's taken by this young man and his faith and the faith that belonged to not only his mother, but his grandmother as well. This is, he's a third generation believer and there's something special about him. So Paul takes interest in him and look how he gets him involved. He's involved in, well, 10, 11 books in the New Testament. Hmm. We wouldn't have picked up on that, you know, no. but, but we gotta look. Again, that's part of the, the background. Yeah. Let's look to see what else we can find. Yeah, well, no, that's really good because you asked me the question, I didn't know the answer. And I, which, I'm, no, no, that, that's, that, no, that's totally fine. But 
I think that that just demonstrates and displays how easy it is to read these books and not be fully um, fully focused on drawing out every aspect of context that yeah. you can find and basically then following that up with, okay, what is this, this little piece of information that may seem minuscule? Yeah. How does this fit into the rest of everything, you know? Can, can I take it a little bit further? Yeah, so, so when Paul then writes to Timothy, you know, the, the, the pastorals, um, first and second Timothy, you know, there's a lot of history. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of history be, behind that with these two guys. Right. How does that figure into our reading of First Timothy and Second Timothy? Does it matter? Well, it's probably not going to change things dramatically. But if we know that, you know, when Paul talks about, um, hey, here's a little wisdom for you, Tim. They've been through a lot. Yeah. And I know Timothy's seen a lot of stuff that we can't even imagine. So, yeah. No, that's that's really good. Um, so one of, one of the things I think that potentially gets in the way of this for a lot of people, um, and I, for myself included, that I still have to like catch myself, is that when you grow up in a certain you know tradition or denomination, um, there tends to be a system of theology that that mm -hmm. comes with that, and so you kind of start to read through that where context i don't want to say that it becomes secondary but to a certain extent it becomes secondary to the system and so the system comes first as opposed to whether or not the system matches up at all and so for example one of the most um and people watching they know that i spend a lot of time studying eschatology but one of the things that blew my mind away is when i was reading matthew 24 um, which traditionally is the end of the world, the, the mini-apocalypse, Christ's little mini-apocalypse. And you read it, and the disciples ask Jesus specific questions regarding his, um, his telling them that the temple's about to be destroyed. And then he begins by answering them and saying, when you see, when you see. And for the majority of my life, you was me and you and anybody who's reading this as opposed to wait who, who is he actually talking to and so a very clear contextual clue that this this pronoun you is being used to the disciples was looked over because i was reading through the lens of a tradition that just you know made it such that i didn't even see it right i was almost blinded to it so what is the importance of doing biblical theology prior to systematics? Why is that so important? Uh, yeah. All right. First, uh, biblical theology yeah, probably needs some kind of a definition. I'm not sure that I'm the one to be offering that. Um, but essentially, I would I would look at it this way: before we can, before and uh, those are. Those are all in caps. B E F O R E. Before we even start to put together a theological system, okay, whether it's dispensationalism or a, a preterist idea or Calvinism, Calvinism or whatever it is, we better have a good and thorough and very sound grasp, grasp of what. Um, 
Scripture, in fact, says, once we have that in mind, and yeah, we're going to be taking a lifetime to do that, I, I hope, I would think. Yeah. Once we have that in mind, then we can start to put together a system as we've understood it. So it's going to be critical that we take scripture, understand what that is, and we have to be good students of the word. We have to be good exegetes of the word. What's an exegete? That's someone who draws out of scripture all of its meaning for everything it's worth. Yeah, reach in and grab everything that you possibly can get out of that. That's the role of our... Um, seminary professors, our pastors, and our teachers to do good exegesis, to pull out everything that's found in a text, get every little drop and morsel out of that text that we can possibly get, then let's put that all on the table and examine it. Okay, we as lay people, as biblical students, it is our responsibility, it is not just the responsibility of the pastors, the theologians, the teachers, and so on. It is our responsibility, our duty, to become good, deep students of the Word as well. Right. And so in order to do that, we have to start with context. We get an idea of what is meant. Now we dig into a passage, and we may be able to read in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and we may only be able to read in English. And in my case, you may not even be able to read in English so well. So what can I say? <laughs> All right, but you take the gifts that God has given you and you read for everything that you've got. You ask everything you possibly can about a passage. Why did Paul write this? When did he write it? To whom did he? Why would he say this? Why would he use this word, not that word? What was behind it? And then we start to take, all right, let's start with Paul. So what does Paul say in the book of Galatians? All right, now I've mastered the book of Galatians, so I have an idea of what he is writing, what he means when he, when he writes the book of Galatians. Now I move on to the next, and let's say um, I move on to First and Second Thessalonians, and I get an idea there. All right, so I'm beginning to get this base idea of what Paul knows what he writes, why he writes, and so on. And then I continue to expand until I've used up all the resources I have on Paul, all 13 of his letters. Now, okay, I've got a pretty good understanding of what Paul means when he writes about um, predestination, for example, as he does in, in Ephesians, all right? I have a, a pretty good idea of what that means, but am I ready yet to now take the leap and go into systematics. No, not yet. Because I've only looked at Pauline writings or Paul's writings. Right. What did Matthew have to say about any of this stuff? Well, need to find out what Matthew says. Mark have anything to say about it? Luke, what about John? And so on. But when we have, a, when we have put together a massive store of a lot of study, then we can start looking at our systems. And is that practical for people? No, that's not terribly practical because right now in my, in my own life, I'm dealing with 
some crisis of Calvinism, and I've got to fight. Okay, so we know that that's not a realistic way. It is a practical way to approach it, but the real, real world way is there's going to be hopefully a lot of biblical theology and some theology proper, if we'll say. Sure. And we, somewhere through our studies, there's a merging of these two and a blending so that we ultimately create this great tapestry. Yeah. But our emphasis better be first and foremost on biblical theology rather than, well, you know, I believe this because Hodge said it back in, you know, the 1800s or whatever. Right. Okay. Well, I, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, too, it's important um, to recognize, I, I think one of the bad habits that we've gotten in when it comes to systematics is that once a systematic theology is developed and quote unquote settled, there really is not a lot of room to then question or reform it. And I think that's that's a problem mm -hmm. that that would help um, marry these two things be better is if, if we're developing a systematic theology from a perceived biblical theology, if we come to a point where we see doing more biblical theology, that something in this is not lining up, we can change that, we can reform it, we I, can I would hope. make it yeah. better. And I think a lot of people, and I, I also think another reason that people tend to prioritize systematics is that simply put, and you kind of alluded to this, but it's, it's easier, right? It's it just is. easier to go, okay, I've got a picture of how this whole thing works, and it starts to make sense. We as humans, we like things that are black and white. We like to be able mm -hmm. to put all our ducks in a row and see them and go, okay, that's everything's in order now. Um, to a certain extent, it gives us a sense of security um, that just kind of saying, hey, before we do that, it's like, well, <laughs> well, that means that I don't know things yeah. for sure, you know, and I don't like that. Um, but I, I do think that, that it, it is very important because the problem, somebody keeps texting me, hold on a sec turn that down the problem is that when we when we prioritize systematic theology instead of biblical theology we may have a perceived sense of security but if that's wrong if that systematic theology is perhaps wrong then we don't know our new testament we don't know our old testament etc and so that's why it's so important is, is is it better to feel a sense of security with something that might be wrong or is it better to be sure of something through the hard and uh, diligent effort of putting forth work into digging into a text pulling it apart um, like i've been i've been studying the book of revelation now for probably about two years pretty deeply and i feel like i'm just scratching it you know what i mean and so like i i envision myself studying that book for the rest of my life until i die and going yeah, I don't, I don't know what this book is talking. You know what I mean? And so, but I think that that's that's the depth and the riches of of the Word of God is the fact that it is. It's there's everything is there that we need, um, and so there. Jonah, here yeah. here is an amazing thing, and it is. It's impossible impossible to fathom this, but you have an infinite God. Yeah who is beyond comprehension, who is beyond description, and yet he has somehow 
figured out a way to explain himself, to exegete himself and to the cultures of man. And it's through words. Um, is it perfect? By no means. But at least we can have sufficient information about who this God is to know him, to grow to love him, and to follow him and be a disciple. Uh, take that wherever you want to yeah. go. But it is that taking the infinite and putting it into the minds of finite people. Right. And that's part of the problem. Yeah. How, do I, how do I take the concept of a, an infinite, well, let's start with that. How do I take the concept of an infinite God and begin to comprehend that or visualize it? I, right. I, I can't mind blown quickly. Okay, but now I take the concept of an infinite triune God, and now I, no, I can't. I can offer this analogy, that analogy. I can offer analogies to the day I die, but they will never, ever, be adequate adequate to explain anything about who God is or how He exists. Right. right. So now we've taken this, these infinite words. God has chosen how to put them into human language that we can comprehend. Doesn't that, doesn't that serve as some motivation to really dig in and find out what exactly those words meant for all that they're worth? Not just, hey, you know. I can blow past this. Why did, hey, why did, uh, why did Luke choose to write about Gallio in Luke 18, or Acts 18? Yeah. Why did he do that? I don't know. No. Oh, don't let that go. Figure it out. Why did Paul mention all those people he did at the end of Romans? Mm. The first handful of them were from Asia Minor. Hmm. A lot of them we know nothing about. They were just names in Rome. Oh, why do we have their names? Why do we have the begats, you know, way back in the Old Testament? Why, why is that there? Well, you're going to have a lot of different answers. But I think it's it's I think it comes down to a, a key thing, and I, I don't know that this is something we've ever talked about. Um, I, I was fortunate several years ago to to take some classes under a couple of the world's best um, cultural anthropologists, and it yeah I learned a lot of things there. But I also learned that if I want to understand scripture well. I should probably understand a little bit more about cultural anthropology. Mm -hmm. That's a good interpretive or hermeneutical tool that most people overlook. Forget it, don't need it. 
But if I understand what it means to, to look at a, a society or a culture and understand it, that's going to push me to understand, well, what was behind what was going on in Palestine during the times of Jesus? Or what was going on in Asia Minor during Paul's time? Yeah. What's the difference between Asia Minor and Greece? Okay, Where do the Romans fit into all this? Who are the Hittites? Those things all matter, and they matter immensely, uh, probably in ways we'll never even begin to comprehend. But if we, if we can take time to study each of those little cultures and understand them with bicultural eyes, okay, then we've opened up Scripture at a, at a totally different level. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. And, that's, and I know that goes well beyond what we've we've talked about or what uh, the intent is for here but once we once we come to uh, an understanding that you know there are multiple ways for things to be understood then it really pushes us okay there's one way that God wanted this understood now it's our job to figure out what was that one way in this culture and in that manner I don't want to read this through American eyes I want to read it through Christian eyes, yeah. okay? And so I need to understand the Greek culture, the Roman culture, a little bit about all these different cultures where this stuff takes place. Yeah. Then I'm going to have a better understanding of whatever book I happen to be reading. Yeah. Sorry, that, that just no, no, that's that was good. way off. But, Sorry, I, but that, that leads me to kind of a follow-up question that isn't isn't something we talked about prior either but I'm, I'm curious you so we're gonna go off on a tangent that's exactly what we're no, gonna do. <laughs> because everyone who knows me knows that I cannot go off on tangents. <laughs> that's so. right um, so how, how do you so the, the idea that God what did God mean what when he inspired the author to write these particular things what would you say you know when you read like an Old Testament text and it sounds like it's saying one very specific thing. And then you get to the New Testament and an apostle uses that Old Testament passage to speak of something that it looks like it really was not saying or would never have been perceived. Like, like how, did, yeah. would you say that God, like a, a census plenier type idea that there is more than one meaning to certain passages that God intends? Like, I'm just curious to know how you approach that subject. Because um, I know there's some people that are very much that, no, there's one meaning, it has to mean this. Um, and others that would say, like, I think it was Augustine who kind of developed, you know, there's a, there's a literal meaning, an allegorical meaning, a this meaning, etc. And I don't, I don't think we should go that far in that direction either. I agree. So, I agree. Um, I don't think so. I think what we need to look at in ter when, when we approach biblical text, we need to approach it as a biblical biblical student of whoever wrote it. For example, if if Paul wrote something, or um, let me think, uh, who, who who was the sorry, no. who was the prophet who came up against the prophets of Baal? Elijah. Elijah. Yeah. So whoever wrote about that episode that guy whoever that was okay and I'm, I'm not altogether clear who that was 
But whoever that was, I know for a fact, when he wrote, there were more than one meaning in some of the things he said. Because that whole incident, when he's talking about the, the, the prophets of, or he's talking to the prophets of Baal, is steeped in so much um, sarcasm. Right. There's not a singular meaning. There has to be at least a couple meanings in play. Otherwise, the sarcasm doesn't make sense. Right. So yeah, there there are places in Scripture, and we have to we have to pay attention to those. Uh, do okay, Jonah. Flip your Bible open, and you just jump into I I, I don't know Mark fourteen. Okay. Right. Well, what does that passage mean to you? Okay, great. Mark, what does that passage mean to you? Something totally different. Mm, we miss it. It really doesn't matter what the passage means to you. Right. It doesn't matter what the passage means to me. It, what matters is what God meant that passage to mean, and it is our duty as students to figure that out. Right. Now, various cultures, approach it different ways, but there is still a singular meaning. So if I'm looking at Mark, I better understand a little bit about the, the Hebrew mindset. That's Mark's background. I probably ought to understand a little bit about Greek writing, because he did write it in Greek. Right. Okay. Um, apart from those things, manners and customs in those two, manners and customs in terms of Rome. Yeah, I should know a little bit about that as well. Okay, all those things come into play, but there is still that singular meaning, except for the time when, you know, clearly the author means something sarcastically or as a joke. Right. Okay, then there may be a couple of meanings out there. Um, do I think there's an allegorical meaning behind it? No. Could it be that a particular prophetic passage has an application in date number one and then hundreds of years later, date number two? That's altogether a possibility. I had sure. an Old Testament uh, teacher one time who used to refer to things like that as telescoping mm -hmm. or it'd be like, um, I, I used to love back then, still do. Uh, just the mountain range? Yeah. yeah. So you're standing here, and you're looking at the top of that that mountain. Okay, well we're gonna we'll get from here to there, easy peasy, right? And you get to the top, and then you realize, ah, oh, there's a valley here. So you go down, and now you're up on the next hill. Ah, oh, we've all ah oh, we didn't make it, because there's another valley. It's telescoped. Okay. Right. Um, that's a whole element of the prophetic uh, books. Brings its whole element of interpretation in too, and we have to consider that. Would I be willing to say one meaning for every text? No. Most texts, 90 some percent of them, yeah. yeah. Sure. One yeah. meaning and that's all. And, that, and just, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think too, just we, we should, every text that we approach as exegetes we should approach it with the assumption that there's one meaning, unless shown otherwise. We shouldn't be looking for multiple meanings unless there's reason to think that there's, 
you know, like maybe Hosea, where it says, out of Egypt I called my son, mm -hmm. and then Matthew applies that to Christ. Well, there you have a clear reason to take that text in a messianic sense right. that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, uh, I was going to say something else on that point. Um, I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> so we'll get into the, the next thing that I wanted to talk about, but kind of, oh, I remember what I was going to say. So all of those things, they tie into the, how we, how we talk about context as well, because if we leave genre out of the topic of context, we're going to, so we, we can easily say like, I've got a literal grammatical historical, you know, hermeneutic when it comes to reading and understanding scripture. But if that means that every single book is read exactly the same, then you're going to come to all sorts of erroneous conclusions. Exactly. You can't read Isaiah the same way you'd read the Psalms or, or Genesis the same way you're going to read uh, something else. You know, you need to distinguish narrative, poetry, etc. Mm -hmm. And then through that, have that literal consistent interpretation um, with the context and genre in mind. Um, so kind of where I want to take this next and kind of this is where we're going to maybe do a little bit deeper dive. But when it comes to doing this biblical theology prior to systematics, tradition has a consensus regarding the dating of different books and kind of th this is the historical setting. This is where it all happened. And so one of the biggest ones, and there are so many roads we can take with this, but one of the main ones is that Paul wrote a certain amount of his uh, epistles at the more, I guess you could say, the beginning of his ministry. And then again, he wrote some more at the end of his ministry from a prison in Rome before he was martyred under Nero. Um, and that's just kind of the traditional understanding. That's how people um, tend to just, they, they grab onto that because it's just been passed down for so many years. Um, why should we question that? Like why, why, if we're doing good biblical theology, why should we say, hey, hold on a minute? All right, um, and, and that honestly, that's a great question. Um, let's just let's kind of establish a, a date framework. Sure. So, let's say uh, the late forties, forty eight, forty seven, forty eight, forty nine A.D. I'm just gonna pull your mic a little closer too, just to make or sure. Or I can yeah. move up now. I'll blast everyone. Right? <laughs> Not no. Uh, so. Uh, Paul gets started with his ministry, 47, 48, 49. Um, first, he's sent by the Jerusalem church to Antioch because, oh my goodness, there are believers in Antioch too? They're calling them Christians there. How cool is that? Well, we better send some good teachers there and they send their best. They send Paul and Barnabas. And so they're teaching, they're having a great ministry and it seems like it's only a matter of months but as they are together worshiping, the Holy Spirit says to the mass, I need you to set aside Paul and Barnabas for a special work that I want them to do. Okay. And that is to go off to an area a little bit farther away. It's actually Paul's homeland and that in that particular area. Uh, so he goes, they're sent off through, um, uh, is it Cyprus or Crete? Because I, I get those two backwards, Cyprus. 
Yeah, I think so. Goes through Cyprus and then on to Asia Minor. He goes up into Bithynia and all the other impossible words to pronounce. <laughs> You'll find them in First Peter where he talks about all these places. Well, that's where Paul went uh, during his first, his first missionary journey. Uh, went there, had successes, some failures, uh, was stoned, left for dead, uh, a lot of other things. And then immediately gets on a boat, heads back to Antioch and reports to the church. He's there, I don't know how long, Luke doesn't tell us, and he immediately takes off again, goes through the same area. He goes back and visits the churches that he started. And then, and this, this, is, this is a little bit of me reading into what's going on in, in Acts. Uh, I think Paul shrewdly knew that he needed to get to Ephesus. And so as he's traveling along the upper country in Asia Minor, and when we say Asia Minor, we're not thinking about the entire continent of Asia that we know today. Right. We're talking about essentially the, the, the country of Eastern, or, or uh, not Eastern, but uh, Western Turkey. Okay, right. that, that's generally known as Asia Minor. All right, so as he's traveling along the upper country, and this would be near the Bosporus, okay? Um, I think Paul is realizing, I gotta get, I, dude, I, I, I gotta get to Ephesus. I'm, I, I gotta go down there and that's where I'm gonna put my life's work. I'm, I'm heading to Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit said, nope, nope, Paul, wait, 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 no, no. Don't want you to go down there. No, 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 just keep going. So he's thinking, all right, uh, let me head on up to the Black Sea. I'm, no, no, don't want you to go up there either. And then at one night, he has a vision or a dream of the Macedonian man who's saying, come, Paul, please come, help us. And so he says, all right, well, this is, this is clearly where God wants us to go. So then he goes down to Troas interesting town. Troy, by the way, most of us read our mythology and think, well, how come Troy's never mentioned in scripture? It actually is. Hmm. It's, it was replaced by the little town of Troas. It's just a few meters hmm. away. Anyway, gets to Troas, sails off to Macedonia, uh, hits a few cities, most significant of which is Philippi. Mm -hmm. Okay stays a little time there, gets run out of Philippi, goes into Berea, Thessalonica, is run out of those towns, finally finds his way down to um, uh, uh, Athens and then to Corinth, okay? Stays a time there and he kind of sneaks a little quick trip into Ephesus before going back to uh, report to his church in Antioch again. Trip at Ephesus was real quick, but he left some people there. His friends Priscilla and Aquila left them to start working the ministry, start working the church. He had met them while he was in Corinth. Interesting couple, they were kicked out of, of Rome. They were Jews, kicked out of Rome uh, because the Jews were no longer welcome in Rome. All right, and we have some rough dates for that, late 40s when it probably took place. 
we have this little passage in uh, Acts 18 that I had mentioned earlier where Paul um, is mentioned in connection with Gallio. Right. And we know from other sources that Gallio was actually the proconsul of Achaia or Corinth in that, that region in 51, summer of 51, summer of 52 uh, AD. All right, so now we've got a, there's, there's a key date that we can use um, and put together chronology that, that Luke has left us in Acts, both before and afterwards. We have now a particular date that we can put everything before and after and so on. Now, he goes back to the church in uh, Antioch and he reports to them what's going on and everybody's amazed. This is all very, very cool stuff. Okay, And obviously they're leaving a lot of things out of what's going on in Paul's right. life. But one thing, one thing I want to mention here, Paul in his first trip goes to the Galatian region, comes back, and many people believe that following in Paul's footsteps, there were people known as Judaizers. And these were people who said, well, um, yes, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, and yes, we need to follow him. But I think Paul's taking a little bit too far. We, uh, we happen to believe that you need to maintain all the elements of the law. Uh, so yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but we also got to do all the sacrificial stuff. We got to do all the offerings. We got to do all this other stuff as well as you know, assume that Jesus is, in fact, the, the Messiah. Um, and they would come in after him into these brand new fledgling churches and just stir things up and make a mess of things. So then it appears that Paul, right after this first journey, gets word of all of this stuff going on probably why he wanted to go visit them in the first place. But somewhere along the way, whether it was before his second visit or shortly uh, after, he comes and says, people of Galatia, how is it that you can so quickly have your faith turn in, turned into turmoil by some people who just come in telling you whatever? Don't you remember what I told you don't you remember your relationship to the law and he gives them a quick refresher in his book his letter to the Galatians okay. now whether it's continuing on in the second journey or then he sets out and visits the churches again and says, okay you took it you heard it you understand it good now I'm moving on he gets to uh, Macedonia um, he has all sorts of cool things happen in uh, Philippi. Uh, he then is <laughs> more or less forced out to go to, um, I, I believe, Thessalonica next. And then there were elements of uh, the Jews who stood up and kicked him out, it caused a bit of a ruckus, caused him to be run out of town. So he goes to Berea he starts preaching there, and the Bereans accepted it well. Uh, one of the cool things about the Bereans is they didn't just take what Paul said, right. show me 
where it was written, Paul. Dude, that's awesome. I'm happy to show you where. And he would go and demonstrate from the Old Testament scriptures everything about the Messiah. And they were encouraged and strengthened in their brand new faith too until the Jews from Thessalonica heard about it, went a few kilometers down to Berea, stirred things up, got him run out of town again, all right, so he had Silas with him, and I believe he had Timothy with him at, at the same time. And he left them there, but the, the brethren or the, the fellow Christians in Berea said, you know what, you need to get out of here. Uh, we're going to send you to Athens. It's a little bit more of an uh, open-minded community. Go down there, settle in for a bit. All right, so he does. Goes down to Athens, and he's... He's working, we all know a famous story about him at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, where he talks about the unknown God. Okay, great missions example and so on. But somewhere along the way, whether it's in Athens or when he goes uh, shortly thereafter to Corinth, he gets word that there's some questions that come up in Thessalonica about things that, things that he's written or things that he said rather. So what's Paul do? Well, jots him a letter, sends it off. They get it in Thessalonica, and okay, that's helpful. Wait, we got more questions. He writes again, sends it off to him. So after one and a half missionary journeys, if that's what we can call them, Paul's established this pattern where, okay, there's a problem. I want to write, I want to address it. Okay, he did that with the Galatians, did that with the Thessalonians. All right, we need to tuck that away. Paul then continues back to Antioch. Um, now he starts shortly after, he's, I get the impression he was there really a matter of days, and he's jonesing to get over to Ephesus. And there's nothing in his way this time. The Holy Spirit has said, yeah, it's wide open, go, go with blessing and I later he hears I am with you period great so he goes to Ephesus he jumps in he meets up with uh, Priscilla and Aquila they become tent makers together they all share a common trade that was cool that allows him to build us and so oh wait a minute there's a problem in Corinth okay what is Paul's response writes a letter, shoots it off via email or whatever means they had, shoots it off to the Corinthians, okay? Another problem, boom, he writes another letter. He, in fact, writes four letters to them, sends two emissaries and, and himself goes and visits while he's in the middle, the middle of his ministry in Ephesus. So now I'm really getting this strong idea that there is a pattern emerging from Paul where uh, I establish a church, you have a problem, I'm gonna do something quickly to deal with it, okay? Right. So we see that in Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, the Corinthian epistles, okay? So now, okay. If we're gonna allow that as a pattern, 
then my question to the general consensus New Testament uh, history is simply this. Why does Paul write so quickly early on and then after, say, 53, 54 AD, he doesn't write anymore. Next we hear of him is at the end of his life in 64, 65, and now he writes seven more letters quick. That doesn't strike me as great consistency. Okay, uh, full disclosure, it's possible that Paul wrote 153 other epistles all between 54 and 64, and we just don't have any of them. Right. Okay, that's, that's a real possibility. Um, we could name any number of other possibilities, but it causes me to wonder, do we have the best um, framework, I guess, for our New Testament history? We have him starting in the late 40s. We know that he's in Corinth in 51, 52. He goes to Ephesus for three years shortly after that. So 53, 4, 5, somewhere in that time frame, he's in Ephesus. Then we don't hear of him anymore. Well, we do from Acts. We know that he goes from Ephesus back to Jerusalem, ends up uh, some followers from Asia Minor come along, stirred things up. Now he's thrown in prison in Caesarea before he then eventually gets to Rome. So are, are we to believe then that everything we have from essentially Acts 20 to 28 is just all of Paul getting to Rome and all the, the things that happen in Jerusalem, Caesarea, and, and Rome. And that covers maybe eight, ten years of time. Hmm. Okay. Is there more? Is there less? Uh, I don't know, but it seems that there's something's just not right. I'm bothered by this pattern, really bothered by this pattern of writing quickly. Only and to yet, have a gap. Yeah, and, and then, then now we've got this gap. Um, it's possible that while Paul was in prison in Caesarea and in Rome, yeah, he's writing those and that those are the, in fact, prison epistles that we hear about. Um, but is that the best, is that the best um, interpretation of history that we have? Right. And as I've gone back and questioned and looked at these things, I'm not altogether sure that it is. Um, there's a lot of things that took place in Ephesus. Right. A lot that took place in Ephesus. Paul uh, doesn't give us a lot of details um, in the letters that he wrote from Ephesus, but there are things that we can pick up from. Uh, we can pick up little snippets and tidbits, generally words that he uses in uh, the Corinthian epistles. Um, we can pick up on a few other things that he may refer to. Um, 
What does Luke say? Well, Luke says he came to Ephesus, he worked there three years, or two and a half, or three, yeah. And then he goes off and then eventually ends up uh, in prison, so on. So the question is, what happened in those three years? What, what was going on? Yeah. Now, here, here's, a, here's, a, uh, here's an interesting study, side study. Sure. Just a little digression. No. Um, when we think about Paul and Paul, Paul the missionary, as, as a kid raised in the church, I'm thinking, well, here's Paul. Um, may have had one guy with him, possibly two. Tough guy, though, this Paul. Um, he's doing missionary work, whatever that is. Must have been tough because he's all on his own. And I'm reading that wrong, totally wrong. If you put together what's going on in Acts with all the other epistles, you find out, oh my gosh, Paul is not traveling by himself. Paul's got his two, three, four right-hand guys. He's got a whole posse traveling with him. And it's not just him on his own. Look at, his, look at who's with him when he goes back into Jerusalem. There's representatives of virtually every city in which he established a church. Hmm. And they're all with him. Oh, that was a new thing. I think not. If you're sitting in Ephesus and you got problems going on in Corinth and you can send a couple of key emissaries who represent you, okay, are you sending everybody you got? No. You still got Priscilla and Aquila in town. Who else do you have in town? I mean, these folks that, these folks that were in town with him, we've got to go back to, we've got to push ourselves back to Scripture to find out who was even there. Right. Okay. Oh, I didn't know he was there. Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of people there. Hmm. So where do I go then next? Have we really read everything well? Do we understand everything well? Paul writes Philippians traditionally from a Roman jail, okay? And he, he writes, you know what, guys, I'm so excited by the gift that you sent me. By the way, thank you so much. I'm grateful for that, but I've learned to get along in whatever circumstance I find myself. Yet, I'm so excited because you guys have found found it significant to partner, to koinonia with me, and to become a part of the ministry. And I'm glad that you've once again had opportunity. Hmm, this bothers me. So Paul, Paul was in Philippi in the early 50s. Okay. Now it's, 10 years later, and you finally had the opportunity to send a gift again. Did you forget about me in all those 10 years? You didn't have an opportunity. There were no couriers coming my way. Uh, 
Mm. Oh, wait, I visited your town in the middle of all of that, and you had no opportunity? Mm. That makes me question, you know, why we're pushing Philippians all the way back to the end of his life. I mean, this guy was a writing fool right. on his last days. You know, I, I guess a deathbed will do, do that for you, but uh, I'm at a point now where I don't really see the need to push all these epistles to the, to the end stages of his life. Sure. Actually, uh, I would think, and it makes a whole lot more sense to say Philippians itself probably was written from Ephesus. Well, wait, 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 wait. I know your first question, John. Paul was in jail when he wrote to the Philippians, right? Right. Well, he wasn't in jail in Ephesus. Right. That we know of. Luke doesn't write about that. We don't know all the times that he was in jail, but we know this because um, we know, well, let's, let's think. Name all the times where, where Paul was in prison. He was imprisoned in Philippi, right? Right? Mm -hmm. He was imprisoned in Caesarea and in Rome. That's everything we know from Scripture, correct? But there is a passage that tells us, and I believe, I believe it's in one of the Corinthian epistles, where Paul tells us, hey, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been in prison. I've been in prison multiple times. And this was written before he gets to Caesarea or Rome. So the only imprisonment we know about is in Philippi. Okay. Well, there's at least one more imprisonment there. How many times was he stoned and left for dead? Well, apparently that was multiple times. He's had shipwrecks, plural, that we don't know about. Luke writes about one, and that's at the very end of Acts. There's all these other Adventure, adventures or misadventures that Paul has that are not recorded in the book of Acts. And I don't think it was Luke's intent to record every element of act of uh, Paul's existence. I think it's there to give a, hey, here's a good sturdy history of all the things, the, the beginnings of the early church. Hmm. All right, so if there's more events that took place, then what makes some sense? Can we imagine, and I'll use that, can we imagine an Ephesian um, uh, imprisonment? Yeah, we could imagine that. There is, in fact, a place in Ephesus where tradition, and I want to emphasize that, tradition has, has it called Paul's jail cell. All right. It is tradition. Is it absolute? No. It's traditionally known by a lot of the people who live in that area. Is it a fact? No, it's not. Do we know it? No, we don't. But now it's at least sufficient to push us to 
look and see what other things might have happened. All right. Paul, Paul took, Paul is uh, eagerly <laughs> involved in starting churches in and around Ephesus. Do I think he started one? No, I think he started multiple. Ephesus was a big town. There were probably 200, 250,000 people in that area. To think that we have one Ephesian church is probably not doing fair service to what was really going on. We know that Paul started at least a church, though. He's still going, or still dealing with things going on in Corinth. Did anything happen in any of the other churches? No, they were all perfect, and he didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. Okay, maybe Paul is writing left and right and just going nuts with sending people here. And I think if you fairly look at the life of Paul, look at those toss-away passages in all of his letters, and by the toss-away passages, I mean the first verse or two, where it says, Paul and Silas and Timothy, or Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, or the end passages where, hey, you know, uh, Jonah says hi, and you know, Megan greets you, and all of those kind of things. Well, who, wait, those are all people with Paul at that time. Okay. I, I get this impression now that there's a lot of frenetic activity going on around Paul and you can't stop it. That's, that's the Paul that I'm seeing from Acts and the epistles. Mm. Now, going back to Ephesus, what do we know about that? We know that in Ephesus, you know, Luke tells us there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of... Uh, various activities. We know about the riot that took place there. Um, Paul had cut into the, the welfare of the silversmiths in the, in the community. They could not make a living because Paul's turning many people from the worship of Artemis to the worship of Yahweh. And that was a big deal. Right. Now, you know, if he's doing this off on his own someplace, not affecting me in my little world, I don't really care. But uh, sales are down 30% this year, and it's because that guy's preaching this baloney. Are you nuts? Um, yeah, I wanna deal with this guy. So one of them stands up, gets the whole town stirred up, there's a riot. Hmm. All right. What do we know beyond, beyond this? Is that, the, is that the first time there was ever anything? Let's allow ourselves to imagine some of this now. Think about it. You're in Ephesus. It's a metropolitan area. There's 200 to 250,000 people there. There is enough of the gospel going out in your presence, because of your presence in Ephesus, that Luke is able to say, that all of Asia Minor has heard the word of the Lord. Mm. The mm. gospel has gone out to that entire region. 
well, that's a little significant. Yeah. And there's more than a couple more people in Asia Minor. All right, so what else is going on? Well, we know that in Ephesus, the Temple of Artemis existed. Why is that important? Well, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Okay, cool. That temple was ginormous. The temple was big. People would come from hundreds of miles away. And that was, I know we don't like to think of it this way, that was a tourist destination for a lot of folks in Paul's day. And they would go just to visit the magnificence of that temple. Okay, does that figure into what's going on with Paul? He's got all this frenetic activity. There are people coming, going in and out. This is a port city. He's working in the Agora, the marketplace, right on the port itself, um, literally, uh, uh, probably a few yards away from where the sea laps up under the shore. And Paul is constantly seeing all these folks come by. He walks down the same streets. He reads these inscriptions on a daily basis. There are inscriptions, signs that are posted throughout telling you what to do, what not to do in your worship of Ephesus. There are parades during the, during the month of Artemis. That was one of their calendar months where the entire, the entire city was expected to participate in the Artemisian festivals. Okay, what happens if you didn't? There were consequences. All right, does that figure into what's going on in Acts, what's going on in that riot. Maybe that's why some of these people were so stirred up because those dumb old Christians are now not participating in the worship of Artemis. And we know that Artemis, who was fallen from the sky, dropped to us here. We have her image, which fell from heaven, and they're not willing to worship her, there will be consequences on us, so we better do something about these Christians so that we don't have to reap the consequences. Okay? That's real world stuff. That was actually taking place then. Do we get that from Acts or Ephesians? No, we do not. But we do get that from other inscriptions that are in play in Ephesus right now. Okay? That's significant stuff. All right, is it possible then that Paul was thrown in prison? Heck yes. Right. It's possible because you look at this, uh, Paul's doing this, Paul's doing this, turn the world upside down, and then there's this riot. We don't hear about Paul anymore, but after that riot, Paul determines, I think I'm gonna go to Macedonia again. And, you know, yeah. When he leaves, that's the last time we hear of Paul being in Ephesus. When he comes back, he's gone through um, Achaia or Corinth, comes back, he does not come back to visit Ephesus. Okay, in fact, Luke makes the point of saying he passes up on Ephesus and goes down, I think it's about 30 miles south to Miletus. 
And from there, he calls the elders in. Why is that? I think, and it's not just me, I, I believe N.T. Wright is, is of the same impression now too, that Paul had become a, an unwelcome person in Ephesus. He was persona non grata. So that, why did he not go back to Ephesus? Mm, may have been a warrant for his arrest. And so, yeah, okay, we'll just head on down to Miletus and call everybody there. And that's where he meets with the elders and they say their goodbyes and there's mention that he'll be bound when he gets to Jerusalem. There's much uh, 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 weeping. The, the, it's a sad goodbye. And they realize this is the last time we will ever see Paul. And that's how they say farewell to the guy who started their church. So now let's allow ourselves to imagine. Let's walk through the streets of Ephesus a little bit. Let's picture what's going on over there with Paul in that tent-making uh, shop that he's got going on. And all those other people around, this guy going this way and that guy and somebody else going on. Somehow the word's going out to all of Asia Minor. That's an amazing, an amazing statement. Mm. Right? Do we think that it's possible that Paul did some minor infraction, angered a couple people, got tossed in prison? That's possible. Do we know it? No. We do not know that. Right. But as I read scripture and as I read more and more, I'm more and more of the impression that there was an unmentioned imprisonment in Ephesus. And then when you can when you have the ability to go back and look at what Paul is writing to the Philippians, he's writing things that are very similar to the stuff that's going on with them while he's in Ephesus. Hmm. Okay, so maybe he's in Ephesus dealing with this stuff and it spills over into some of the things he says when he writes to the Philippians and shoots the letter off. Okay. Possibility. Can I, can I prove any of that? No. But when we have history of the New Testament, as we do, we have the absolutes of Acts, and then we have the, the, the epistles and so on. That's all we have to work from we then take the best evidence that we can, put it all together, and see what comes up. Yeah. What we've worked with for decades is this idea that in the 40s, Paul started. In 51, 52, he was in Corinth. And then in 64, 65, flurry of, of writing activity, and then he's martyred. Yeah. Does that do the best evidence to um, the epistles? I think not. Um, I mentioned the Philippians. Well, you know, we know that uh, the Philippians was written from Rome because he mentions Caesar's household and the Praetorian Guard. No. No, he does not. He mentions the Praetorium. The Praetorium is mentioned several other times in the New Testament. Hmm. 
It is a place. It is not a guard. It is a place. Mm. It was the place where Pilate stayed. I believe it was probably used, I, I, I may be mistaken, but it may have also been used as the word for Herod's residence. But it definitely appears there. It appears throughout Scripture as a specific place where a ruler resides. So is it a, a translational assumption then that guard is added to that? based upon a, a conceived notion of what the context is indicating. I would say that's probably the case. Mm. The word is praetorium, which generally means a specific place. It originally was the uh, place where a, a, a general in uh, battle would stay. He, his tent was the praetorium. The praetorium grew and grew over the years of Roman empire building to become a bigger and more significant thing but it was a place when we get to philippians and we see most translations will say to the you know it became known throughout the instead of saying it became known throughout the entire praetorium it became known throughout the praetorian guard and it I don't know why. I don't know why, other than perhaps it's a uh, a translational assumption. Right. Okay, but the word is praetorium. Well, okay, let's I, leave it there. Yeah. All right. Um, Caesar's household. Caesar had members of his household scattered throughout the empire. They were there to do his bidding. Mm -hmm. Silanus, S-I-L-A-N-U-S was the proconsul of Ephesus, or of Asia Minor, uh, residing in Ephesus, until um, he, uh, he came up against uh, a little guy named Nero. He was a threat to Nero. He was actually, he actually had better credentials to take over the throne. Hmm. And Nero's mom knew about that, Agrippina knew about that and sent a couple of guys to, to Ephesus to take him out, which they did while Paul was there. Hmm. He's living right there. And Solanus dies somewhere during Paul's time while he's there. Do we have mention of that? No. Do we think that was significant? Probably. Yeah. That was a significant event that took place while Paul was there. Hmm. All right. So these people that are left, the two assassins, who takes over leadership? Well, speculation is it was those two guys who took over. They were classed, generally, members of Caesar's household. Now, again, we're talking about Philippi, but the point is, the Praetorium, there were many of them. Right. Praetoria, I guess. Members of Caesar's household, they're scattered all over the empire. That doesn't necessarily mean, or it doesn't necessarily indicate that Philippians was written from Rome. 
Mm-hmm. Those are probably the two strongest pieces of evidence. Yeah. Um, and in the in the very least, even if they don't conclusively point to something else, they at least call into question the um, the. I guess you could say the the definite nature of it being in Rome. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Mm. So, what do we do with that? Well. Is there another place where this fits? Can is there an alternate um, interpretation of history? And yeah, I, I, I clearly think there is. Right. Which basically, without going too much into all of that, I think it has Paul wrapping up his writing assignments, probably in fifty-seven, fifty-eight. Um, what does he do after that? And I would say that probably coincides with what Paul or what Luke has in Acts. So then what does he do afterwards? Well, we don't know. We know he wanted to go to Spain. There are traditions that have him having gone to Spain. Did he make it there? Don't know. Kind of cool to think that he did. But again, that's just speculative and we don't know that for fact. Right, you could you could still have him being martyred in Rome. Absolutely, and absolutely. I think I think any... I think his death in Rome, sixty four, sixty five, is pretty much it. It's it's close enough to be a historical fact that we can say that's his. Hmm, I don't know the Latin. I think terminus ad quo. I think sure, yeah. that's the end. You know, okay, here's the end. Right. What do we do with those years after? And unfortunately, we don't know. We don't know about Jesus' early life. We don't know that much about Paul's early life. Right, right. We don't know about the apostles or the other disciples. Where did they come from? What did they do? What was their life like? What happened with John? We know a little bit about that. And I love, well, you know, we've talked about where where did John end up? Right. So, yeah. Well, I, I, th- I think the... The coolest thing about this is, is regardless of whether or not an alternate view is, is true, the point is, is that you're, as we talked about earlier, you're emphasizing the need for biblical theology. And once you start doing that, you actually have the ability to refine, you know, and, and say, okay, where... How, how have we potentially misunderstood this? And if we get it right, what are the implications? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't want to go too much deeper because I think that, you know, this will probably be quite a bit for people to just kind of process. But kind of as we're thinking about wrapping up, what would you say to people listening or watching right now? Like, how, how do we take this and what do we do with it? First and foremost, you've got to be a student of the word. Just because Jonah said it, you know, and I, I, I trust you as a good biblical exegete, but I want to be a Berean right. and make sure that, yeah, Scripture really says that before I take your word for it. And I don't want to put a wedge between um, a listener and their pastor. That's not the intent. Right. It is the pastor's job to preach the word in its full counsel and to do it well, okay? But any pastor, any preacher worth his salt 
would see the value of a Berean and his congregation and say, you know what? I really appreciate Sally out there because she never takes everything that I say. She always checks it against scripture. Mm -hmm. And that's a good fact check for me too. Yeah. We have political entities, political individuals who do not have their facts checked. We know this now. Um, that creates problems, creates all sorts of problems for them, for their constituents, for the country, all right? right. Be a fact checker, be a Berean. That's a cool, cool thing. Um, use your imagination. Uh, and I, by that, I, you know, I want to, I want to take that with a grain of salt. Do I think that, you know, uh, there was a, an alien spaceship that landed somewhere in the desert, picked up Paul, or excuse me, picked up uh, Philip, transported him over to where the, <laughs> no, no, no. You know, let God be God, let scripture be scripture, but where scripture doesn't specifically say something, then yeah, I mean, we have an opportunity to find out, and I think we have an obligation to find out what makes the most sense. And does it make more sense to say that Paul, with this pattern of problem, answer, problem, answer, problem, answer, waits till the end of his life and throws out seven, more than half of his epistles that we have recorded? Right. Does that all at the end, just before he's martyred? Hmm. I, I, that's not consistent with the Paul that I have come to understand in Scripture, who was a frenetic, possessed uh, individual with uh, the ability to, to multitask, keep several things going on all at the same time. And we haven't, Jonah, we haven't even touched on the anguish that comes out in some of Paul's letters. Mm. Why? Is he so disturbed? Why is he so bothered in the Corinthian epistles? You know, you know, or or even in uh, the Philippian his Philippian letter. Why is he so bothered? Why is he? Why does? Why is he anxious even for death? Hmm. If you know, yeah, I'm working here in Ephesus. Things are going great. We got a lot of stuff going on. Heck, people are coming and they're taking little pieces of my, my tunic and they're being healed by that or grabbing a handkerchief that I had and they're healed by that. My gosh, there's millions of dollars of books that are being burned because people are turning away from magic. That's amazing. Those are amazing things. And yet, I, I am so wiped out just because of the Corinthians, that I'm a desperate man. Hmm. That doesn't figure. What else is going on? There's multiple things going on. And so I think Paul had a lot of successes in Ephesus, and I think he came up against a lot of negative individuals, a lot of Demetriuses, a lot of people who wanted to do him much, much harm. Hmm. And so when he writes, with this great depth of feeling, I think it's 
partly because of his compassion for the Corinthians, partly because of what's going on here, partly what he knows is going on in Philippi, or the the two or three congregations down the street that got started in Colossus, or Laodicea, or Hierapolis, or some of the other nearby places. Mm -hmm. Paul is carrying the weight of not the world, but of the entire northern Mediterranean. All the churches are on him. And, you know, we like to take and interpret, well, you know, Paul was just really compassionate about the Corinthian people. I think Paul had a lot more going on oh, than no, just, just that. So mm. when I say allow ourselves to imagine, I mean by that, don't, don't go to the Disneyland stuff, to the ancient aliens, to things like that. Let's be real. How would you feel in that situation? Right. Paul probably felt the same way. What would that mean? What would you what would you do? What would you do if you were in that position? Yeah. Those are dangerous things. Right. They're dangerous things to throw out. But we have to allow Paul to be a man. Right. Let's let him be a man. Let's let him have real feelings. Let's have him let's let him have uh, real compassion. And let's let him feel everything that he can with the depth of all he's got. Let's surround him with people because that looks like what he did. Right. And now let's back up and allow our interpretation of Paul to take on a little bit of a different picture. So when I say let's use our imagination, right. that's what I mean. Right. Yeah. Try Trying to enter into his humanity and yeah. go, okay, yeah. why, why is he expressing himself in this way again going to the context and saying is there anything in the context that indicates that and if not where is he in life mm -hmm. right now and what else could possibly be going on yeah well this has been this has been really great um i'm always encouraged talking with you it, it um i definitely um as my viewers know i lean much more heavily into tradition and the consensus of the church um but I'm always very deeply encouraged and challenged to also never neglect opening the scriptures and studying them and um, coming to see, you know, that what has been taught and what has been said, testing it by, by going and reading it myself. Um, there's a pastor that I listened to a while ago. Um, his name's Pastor Tim Conway, not the, not the comedian, but, um, but he, he had said... Um, to his congregation, he said that I believe that you are in sin if you show up to church and listen to my sermon without an open Bible. And that really stuck with me, you know, the mm -hmm. idea that, you know, it, it's, it's sinful to not have an open Bible as, a, as somebody is exegeting and saying, this is what I think it says. Um, you know, and I think, I think if we are, you know, even the logic of my own position, which is that the consensus of the church has a great deal of influence, if you're sitting without an open Bible, you're no longer following the principle of the consensus of the church, you know, because you're no longer corporately opening and seeking the scriptures together. Um, so yeah, I would just encourage uh, my viewers, um, definitely as you're studying, and I know a lot of you are into systematics and you're part of traditions that have a very systematic approach to scripture. I would just encourage you, um, 
definitely submit to the authorities that, that, that God has placed over you. But do not be afraid to open the scripture and go where the scriptures lead you. Ask questions. Study them. Um, be a Berean. And uh, I do believe that we, no tradition is, is without the ability to be reformed. And so I believe that if we as uh, confessing Protestants hold to the Semper Reformanda, always be reforming, we must also be willing to challenge the systems and the notions we have about what Scripture says in light of, of what um, and where Scripture leads us. So, Mark, thank you so much. This has been awesome. It's been uh, a joy to have you on. Like I said, this has been my pleasure, my honor. Thank you. God bless you guys, and we'll talk to you all in the next podcast.